Good morning. I'm actually re-preaching my sermon from August 14th. The people in the room got to hear it just fine. But those of you who were not here because you were sick or away on vacation were not able to hear because we had so many technical troubles with our live stream. So here we are again. It's Tuesday morning, August 16th, and I'm re-preaching it. And I pray that it'll be a blessing to those who missed it, or maybe for those who would like to hear it again. Well, let's go and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 21, and let's ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Father, we ask for your will to be done this morning. Lord, for some reason you, had orda- you have ordained for me to preach this sermon twice, and I pray that this sermon would be a blessing to those who hear it, whether now or way into the future. Lord, you know your purpose, and I pray that you would accomplish it through me and your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. In Acts chapter 21 is where we left off the week before. It was there that we saw that the Apostle Paul has returned to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, he met with the Jerusalem elders who were very worried for Paul because there was a There was a lot of rumors going about him in the city, and people were very, very angry with him. And because they were very angry with him, they came up with a plan to protect his life. You see, the rumors that were going going around was that Paul was against God's law. And he was telling the Jews all around the world to basically stop being Jewish. And you don't have to observe the Jewish customs and cultures anymore now that you're a Christian. Well, the Jews in Jerusalem were not going to have it. And they were very upset at Paul and were very angry and wanted to kill him. So the elders came up with this plan that, Paul, we have some men who are taking a Nazarite vow. Go with them to the temple, pay their uh, offering, shave your head, purify yourself so that they will see that you're not against God's law because the Nazarite vow was a part of one of those customs that God had ordained in his word. And so Paul does that. But when he gets there, he's met with an angry mob once they discover that Paul is there at the temple. And they get him and they beat him badly. It was then at that time that, of course, a huge commotion breaks out in the city. And the Roman tribune, which is the military commander, finds out that there's chaos happening. So he goes down to break it up. And when he gets there, he arrests Paul, the man that they're beating. And by doing so, he actually probably saved his life because these Jews wanted to kill Paul. Then the tribune, the military commander, takes Paul to the barracks. He's about to bring him inside. And remember, Paul at this time is beaten so badly, he he can't even get himself up to go in himself. So he has to be helped and carried inside. And that's where we left off. Paul's about to go inside the Roman barracks, beaten, the crowd is screaming. And let's look at verse 37 of Acts chapter 21. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? The tribune replies, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? So as they're about to enter, It is at this time that the tribune hears a question from Paul. Paul is seeking permission for something. And the permission is to speak to the commander. And the commander is surprised because he hears Paul speaking Greek. Now, Greek was the common language of the Roman Empire. It was one, though, that was spoken of and reserved for the cultured and educated It wouldn't be something that some criminal or lowlife, this is who this man assumed Paul to be, would have known. And on top of that, he thought he was an Egyptian. He thought he was an Egyptian. And more than that, he thought he was an Egyptian terrorist. This Apparently, there was a man at the time who had stirred up a revolt in Jerusalem and had led 4,000 Jews, Jewish men, out into the wilderness to start a rebellion against the Roman Empire. But they did so in bringing great terror to the city. They would stab people in the stomach with daggers 
who were thought to be Roman sympathizers. They would gather around times where large uh, crowds were gathered. And at this time, it was around the day of Pentecost. So there would have been a lot of people in the city. And so this guy thinks Paul is this Egyptian terrorist. It's a, it's a feast. It's a festival day. There's a large crowd here. This, this guy's terrorists are probably out here causing more trouble. And the word assassins actually means dagger men. Dagger men. And so that's what they used, daggers. And this is actually of a part of the historical record as well. The uh, Jewish historian Josephus, who was alive during this first century time, um, wrote about this Egyptian terrorist uh, as well. And he says in his historical record that there was a false prophet, that's who this Egyptian was, and he came to Jerusalem, stirred up a bunch of support, got a bunch of Jewish men to go with him uh, to the Mount of Olives, and he says, when I give the word, the walls of Jerusalem will fall down and we'll take the city. Well, of course, that didn't happen because the Roman governor Felix found out about this plot and put a squash to it and killed hundreds of them. But the Egyptian leader was never seen, and he escaped uh, and was fine. So since they were still looking for him, they assumed Paul was him. They assumed that these Jews who were beating up this man, that they didn't know who it was, was actually the Egyptian terrorist. So when he hears Paul speaking Greek, he is shocked. He, he, you know Greek? Um, this terrorist guy would not have known Greek. He's like, wait, what? Also, when Paul says something, he seeks permission. doesn't sound like something a terrorist would do. Look at verse 39. Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. So Paul begins to say to this Roman commander, I am a Jew. He said, I'm not an Egyptian. He makes it very clear, I'm not who you think I am. I'm a Jew. Also, I'm from a very important place. You see, Paul was from the city of Tarsus in Cilicia. Tar- Tarsus was a very well-known city and well-respected city in the Roman Empire, especially among the military. Um, you no know, obscure there just means uh, not ordinary. Uh, it, there, are many, there were many important historical moments that have happened in the city at this time. For example, Alexander the Great one, once made camp there and made it a base of his operations. And in the city, it was where the legend, legendary love story of Mark Antony and Cleopatra, part of that story took place in that city. It was important for its influence politically, um, economically, and intellectually. And so, Paul's a very smart man. He knows what will stand out to this Roman commander as he seeks permission and audience from him and thinks that this will give him a right to be heard. Well, it does. It does. And we're going to see something in this passage that we see throughout the whole scriptures. And if you've heard at least more than one sermon here at Northwest Baptist Church, you're not surprised about what I'm about to tell you, that's the main thread throughout this whole passage and story. The reason Paul mentions that he's from Tarsus was so he could gain an audience with this commander. If Paul was not from Tarsus and he was just some ordinary Jew or he was this Egyptian, this guy would not give him the time of day. However, because he is from Tarsus and he's a Jew, The man obliges him. Now think about this for a moment. Paul is from Tarsus. He's a Jew. Why is that important? This is why. Because there are no accidental details of our lives. God is sovereign. That's the main thread in this passage. We have no influence or decisions about where we are born but God plans every detail for his glory God ordains everything God ordains our words God ordains his purposes 
so that everything that he wills comes to pass. Everything Paul says here is on purpose. And all the details of Paul's story and life are important. As a matter of fact, nothing happens by accident. Nothing. There is no such thing as luck. Christian really shouldn't use the word luck because if we believe that God is sovereign, then there's no reason to believe that things just happen by accident because there are no accidents. For example, let me show you a couple of scriptures. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 37. Who has spoken and it came to pass? Like, who here has the authority and the power and the control to say something and make it actually happen? Nobody. And you might be thinking, well, I've said some things and they've happened. Yeah, but even you are underneath the rule of a sovereign God. And the verse continues, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? You may plan your day. You may think that you're going to get your way or you want to do something a certain way. But it will not happen unless God wills it. Unless God commands for his will in your life, whether it's good or bad, to take place. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Yes. It is from God. God is the God of glory. He's the God of righteousness. The God of calamity, as we see in the scriptures. In Isaiah 46.10, God is the one who is declaring the end from the beginning and from Ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. There is nothing that God wants that he doesn't get. That's what the doctrine of God's sovereignty teaches us. And that everything that happens in this world is a part of his story. That's what history is. It's his story. God is telling a story since the beginning of time. We're all characters in this story, and it's not about you, and it's not about me. It's about him, and nothing escapes his knowledge. Nothing escapes his attention, and he has planned it all since before time began. In fact, even the persecution that Paul is enduring at this time is a part of God's sovereign will. If you will remember back to Paul's conversion, he even says then, And he hears through the mouth of Ananias, who heard this message from God, to tell Paul. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15 through 16, God tells Ananias, The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. Speaking of Paul. God says that Paul is a chosen instrument. To do what? To carry my name before the Gentiles and kings of the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Yes. The day Paul got saved, he found out that it was God's will for him to suffer. You know, all of this hogwash that Christianity, some parts of Christianity tries to sell people. Oh, come to Jesus. He has got a wonderful plan for your life. That's a part of the health and wealth gospel. We, we, we try to deceive people into becoming a Christian thinking that the rest of their life will be perfect. That's not, the, that's not biblical. That's not realistic. That's not in accordance with sound doctrine. If you've lived more than five minutes, you know the headaches and heartaches and pains of life become an instant reality. And that you know that things don't always work out. And not everything is wonderful. But even in the good, even in the bad... God is sovereign, and he's using all those things for my glory. Paul's suffering here, which was ordained, and he knew about since the day he was saved, was for God's glory and God's will. God ordained it. This is why Paul knows he has to go to Jerusalem, even though his friends are telling him not to go. God has ordained it, and he will go, and he's even willing to suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus However, it's not just Paul's suffering that is ordained. It is also every detail of Paul's life. For example, being born in Tarsus, in Cilicia. God planned that. Why? 
Well, for many reasons, but at least in this story, for one, it gave Paul the audience he needed to be heard by this Roman commander. Paul didn't have a choice in where he was born. That didn't happen by accident. God knows exactly. And this is why Paul mentions it. Every detail of our life, even where we are born, even where we live, even the times we live, and the years we live are all ordained by God. This is what Paul said to, on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, Paul says to them, And he, speaking of God, made one man from every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. I mean, this is astounding to think about. God, before time began, knew when he wanted you to be born, knows when he wanted you to die, knows where you were going to live, knows why you were going to live there. Why? It's all a part of his story. It is God decides when you're born. It's God who decides where you're born. It's God who decides who your parents are. Someone has once said, your parents may not have planned you, but God did. It is God who decides what gender you are, not you. He should know because he made gender, and he only made two, male and female. He created them. But that's another sermon altogether. It is God who decides your eye color. It is God who decides how much hair you have. And it's at this point on Sunday sermon that the congregation decided to chuckle. I don't know why. Or don't have. It is God who decides your height, your shoe size. There are no accidental details about your life. You may not like a certain feature about your body or how you look like. But God has designed you and planned you like that for his glory. You may not like yourself, but God made you like that because he loves you and he has got a greater story to tell through you. And it's not about you. It's about him. It's about his glory. It's about his purposes. He created you in his image and he gets to decide every part of your story. Now, you may not understand that, but let me give you a helpful story that maybe might make it make more sense. Have you ever heard the story of Amy Carmichael? As a little girl, Amy wanted blue eyes more than anything in the world. Her mother had always taught her that God answers prayer. So every night before bedtime, Amy would ask God to change her eye color from brown to blue. She so desperately wanted blue eyes. And every morning she would jump out of bed, run to her mirror, and check to see whether God answered her prayer every morning though her eyes were still brown. Eventually, later on in her life, Amy decided to become a missionary and moved to the country of India. In India, she served helping young girls escape from temple slavery and prostitution. The kind of work she did required her to appear to look like an Indian woman. By dressing like an Indian woman, she was able to rescue many, many little girls. Now stop and think about this. There she would finally learn one reason God had sovereignly appointed her eyes to be brown. If she had been born with blue eyes, there would be no way anyone would believe she was really from India. She would not have been able to help all those girls escape temple slavery and prostitution. Why? Because the women of India had brown eyes. The sovereign God, knowing the work he had for her to do, gave her brown eyes. And she thanked God for not answering her prayer later in life. You see, even Amy Carmichael's brown eyes were appointed by God to do his work in helping little girls in India escape slavery. There are no accidental details of your life. All of it is planned by God. Will you know all the reasons in this life? Probably not. For Amy, she discovered one of the reasons that her eyes were brown. 
and she came to understand that God is good. Why was Paul born in Tarsus? Well, again, it wasn't an accident. God is sovereign, and he wanted Paul to accomplish the mission he had sent him to do, which is what? Carry the name of God before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And that's exactly what Paul did. Being born a Jew allows him to to minister to Jews. Being born in Tarsus allows him to minister to the Gentiles. So, the Roman commander gives Paul permission. So what is Paul now going to, to say to the people? Look at verse 40. When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. This is the first of six defenses Paul will make here towards the end of the book of Acts. In fact, the rest of the book of Acts is all about Paul giving defenses, being arrested and in prison before the Gentiles and before the Jews. You see how God's plan works out? Let's see what he says. Remember, he says, this is my defense. What is he defending himself again against? Being an antinomian. An antinomian who supposedly was against God's law. He was telling the Jews that he is not opposed to these things. So he says in his defense, verse 2, And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said to them, verse 3, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. He tells them, I'm from Tarsus, but listen, I was raised here in this city. At some point, we don't know exactly when, Paul's family relocated from Tarsus to Jerusalem. Why? We don't know. But we know God was telling a story through Paul. And it was important for him to be raised in Jerusalem so that God would have his will accomplished in Paul's life. Paul was raised in the heart of Jewish life and culture. He was born a Jew living far away in Tarsus, but now he comes to Jerusalem and was raised here. Somehow, the God's plan works sovereignly even through his father and bringing him here. He then continues, I'm also a Jew with the best education. I studied at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the most highly respected Jewish Pharisees of that day. He was one of the greatest influential teachers of that day as well. And this gathers a lot of respect when people hear that you studied at the feet of Gamaliel. This would be the equivalent, not exactly, but like saying someone graduated from Harvard or Yale with a 4.0 GPA with high honors at the top of their class. Gamaliel also taught Paul, he says, according to the strict teaching of the law. I know what God commanded. I know what Moses wrote. I studied under the best, and I observed it. So you're accusing me about being against the law. I studied underneath the best that you all know about, Gamaliel. And he, he taught me with a strict observance of the law and what that means. So I'm a Jew from a prominent city that has the best education, and I am zealous for God and his law. The word zealous means enthusiastic loyalty. I'm a Jew just like you. I'm one of you. I was raised here. I have a Pharisaic education. I'm passionate about the law. I'm born. And I have a track record that shows this. Again, Paul is defending himself from their lies. He's defending himself from them trying to kill him. Paul isn't who he is unless God is sovereign. He doesn't have the zeal he has. He doesn't have the education he has. He doesn't have the parents he has. He isn't from the cities he's from unless God plans it all. Look at verse 4. And now Paul says, I have the track record to prove it. Let me show you what I've done to show you that I'm not against God's law. In verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. The way being Christians... 
And they received that name, the way, in those days. Because they were proclaiming that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. This is a nickname that they were given. Oh, those are people of the way. Those are the way people. And this is what Paul says. I persecuted the way just like you're doing. So basically, I get it. Uh, I've done what you are now doing to me. I know that you're zealous for God's law because I was also zealous for God's law. And if you don't believe what I'm telling you is true, then here, I have some people you can go ask. They can vouch for me. Look at verse 5. As the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness, from them I received letters to the brothers. And I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Everything I'm telling you can now be verified by your own leaders. Why? Because they were the ones who hired me to go seek out Christians that we believed were hiding in Damascus and bring them back to Jerusalem to face trial. I am one of you. I'm a Jew raised underneath the Pharisees, zealous for God's law. I'm doing what you did. Trust me, I get it. I did it myself. But then something happened to me. And here's where Paul begins his testimony of how he met the Lord Jesus and how everything changed in his life. Look at verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Here we learn a new detail about Paul's conversion testimony, which is recorded for us in Acts chapter 9, which we did many, many months ago. The new detail here is that Paul's encounter with Jesus happened about noon. Now, why is that significant? Because Paul says about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And it knocked him to the ground. Well, why is this important? Because noon is the brightest part of the day. The noon sun is at its highest point of the sky. But a bright light that outshines the noon sun, that's an important detail. When you shine a light outside at noon, you can't really see that light. But at But a bright light at noon that could be seen, that light is important. Something is different about that light. And it knocks me to my ground. It knocks me to the ground. This is what Paul says. And we know what this light is. It's the glory of the Lord Jesus. The glory of the Son of God, who is God himself. Who just doesn't have the glory He is glory. This is what the scriptures say. He is the glory of God. If you want to know what the glory of God is, you look at Jesus. Because he is everything that God is. Everything about his person and his character and all of his attributes will shine to you the glory of God the Father. And this is what the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 1. He actually begins his sermon here, which is what Hebrews is, is a long sermon telling us that Jesus is better than all these other things. In Hebrews chapter 1, 1, he says, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Do you see that? He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the bright light that shines. The holiness of God that comes down. And, this, and that'll just knock you off your feet. And make you bow down in worship. Or that is even possible to consume you. Because we are rebellious people. Who stand in judgment. From God. I'm reminded of Isaiah. When he saw the glory of God. When he saw the glory of God. All he could say. Is woe is me. I'm undone. A man of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the Lord. He saw the glory of God. In that room. In that vision. 
And this is what Paul sees on the Damascus Road. He's telling them this story that something happened and a bright light knocked him down. Look at verse 9. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. So Paul continues his story. He gets knocked down to the ground. The Lord told me to go to Damascus. But what else does he say? When I was on the ground and I saw this light, I heard a voice. And whose was it? It was the Lord. What did the Lord say? Get up, go to Damascus. It was the voice of the Lord Jesus, which is a sermon in itself. Because by saying Jesus, Paul is saying to them, he has risen from the dead. Because all those Jews listening to him here outside the barracks would have known We've crucified him. We killed him. He's dead. But now you say you saw him and that he is the Lord? There's something different about that, Paul. There's something different about that. And the Lord told me to go to the city. And I was helped by a man named Ananias. And listen to what he says about Ananias because it helps you frame his his, uh, defense. He says that Ananias was a devout man. The word devout means faithful, religious He's faithful to what? The law. Now, this is why Paul brings this up. Again, no accidental details in Paul's life. And why is that? Because he's trying to show them that he is not against the law. So here is someone who is sent by the Lord Jesus, who is faithful, who is devout to the law, who has a good reputation, and now is affirming to Paul that the Lord Jesus had spoken to him. He's saying, listen, if you have problems with this, then you go talk to Ananias because he's the one who is devout, who's not against the law, but is also for me and what I'm doing, and he will tell you what the Lord said to me. How can I be against God when someone who is like you vouched for me and sent me and telling me what the Lord wanted me to do? And it was there that I got my sight back. Look at verse 14. What does Ananias tell Paul? The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Every Jew knows what Paul means when he says the God of our fathers. That's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Paul, appointed you to know his will. And what was his will? To see the righteous one. Who is the righteous one? It's the Messiah. This this title would have been well known of by the Jewish people. And you heard a voice from his mouth. You have seen the Messiah. You heard the Messiah. And now the Messiah has called you to his mission To go. And so why do you wait? Rise, be baptized. And call on his name to be saved. This is the will of of the Messiah. So Paul continues in verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, They themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Here Paul shares another encounter with the risen Christ. And what was it? Go be my witness. 
Here Paul also says, I went to the temple to pray. Again, he's giving his defense. Am I against the temple? Am I against the law of God? No. Those are rumors that you're believing. And it's not good. Look at verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Now, what word was that? Up to this point, remember, Paul is speaking outside the barracks to the Jewish people with the permission of the Roman commander. They're listening to his testimony and his defense about how he's not against the law, how he met Ananias, how he met Jesus, and how he sent them out. But what word gets them upset? Well, it's the last word Paul says in the previous verse, and it's the word Gentile. The word Gentile is the trigger word. This was a bridge too far, too far for them to go. They were tracking with him up to this point. They start screaming and yelling. Look at, look at verse 22. They raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Up to this word. They start tearing off their clothes. They start flinging dust into the air. Now, why is that? Now, something similar happened in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen was stoned by Paul and his companions. If you remember, they also took off their cloaks and they also picked up rocks to throw at Paul. At Stephen. And so here is, here is this scene. And why do they grab dust? I think, don't think there were any rocks. If there were rocks, Paul would have been stoned on the spot. And so to protect Paul, and because the riot is ensuing, he takes Paul and brings him into the barracks. And orders that he be flogged. Now, remember what flogging is. The Romans had a cat of nine tails, which was called. It had strips of uh, bone and, and glass, and, and, and it was designed to whip people and to tear their flesh. It was, it was something that was designed to do for torture. This is what they did to the Lord Jesus. If you remember, they scourged him. They tore his back. Many people who were scourged and flogged do not survive the flogging. They do not survive the scourging. And so Paul here now goes in. And they bring him inside to protect him from the Jewish people. And they also want to investigate why it is that they are so upset at him. They want to know what is it that he is hiding from them. And look at verse 25. When they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? <laughs> now this is, this is very important information. Paul waits to the very last moment. He gets to the point where he is literally stretched out, ready to be flogged. And he asks another question to the to the. Romans there, the centurion that was close by. And he says, is it right for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? You see, this is a truth bomb from Paul. It's a rhetorical question. Because Roman citizens were granted protection against being mistreated. Anyone else could be mistreated. A Jew or a foreigner or anyone can come in But Roman citizens were granted protection underneath the law, underneath the empire. Roman citizens were able to receive due process. And this is astounding. This raises so many questions for us here. Paul just asked the question, is it rightful for you to flog a Roman citizen? Look at verse 26, because this sends the man into a panic. When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen 
And he said, yes. Wow. Wow. You see, if, if a Roman beat another Roman without due process and they were uncondemned, they could be killed. They could be flogged themselves. They could lose their jobs, be imprisoned. The worst things could happen to them to violate another Roman citizen's rights. So now, just stop here for a moment. Paul is a Jew, born in Tarsus, and now we learn something different about Paul. Paul is a Roman citizen. He's a Jew and a Roman citizen. You see, those things don't mix. One is not like the other. It's not common for that to happen. And he goes in there and says that he's a Roman citizen. By telling this man this, he just saved his life. He just saved his job. He saved his freedom. Paul is a Roman citizen. Let that think in. Remember when I said earlier, there are no accidental details of your life. Who planned for Paul to be a Roman citizen? God. God did. For some reason, we don't know all the details. Paul was raised in a Jewish family in Tarsus. And somehow his father was a citizen or granted citizenship. And Paul was born to a citizen so that he was born into this. He was born with Roman citizenship rights. This is amazing. And it's all planned and ordained by the sovereign hand of God. Why? Well, think about it. God had purpose for Paul to be a witness to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And that his witness would go before kings as well. So what does God do to bring about his glory and will through Paul? He plans Paul's life accordingly. He makes Paul a Jew and a Gentile from a very prominent city and also given the best education. Everything about Paul's life is planned by God. And in this instance, it is planned by God for his glory to spare Paul's life and also for him To preach the gospel to Romans as well. This is is really just amazing when you think about this. And why the sovereignty of God is wrapped in this story from the beginning to the end. But the irony thickens here in the next verse. When Paul confirms that he's a Roman citizen. In verse 28 we see the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul says, I'm a citizen by birth. You see, at that time, you could buy your way into being a Roman with a large sum of money, which is what this Roman commander did. He wasn't even a a naturally born citizen. And so when you're not a naturally born citizen and you were just like a bought, you bought your rights to be a citizen, you're still like a citizen, but you're like a second class citizen. And so here's a second-class citizen getting ready to beat a naturally-born citizen. That would have been even worse. Paul just saved his life by confessing who he was. Look at verse 29. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid. For he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. It's the sovereignty of God. And it's Paul being a Roman citizen that allows him, and we're going to see this later in Acts, to continue to appeal his case to higher authorities. And eventually, he goes all the way to Caesar. He appeals in defense of his life and freedom to Caesar himself. Why? Because he's a Roman citizen. And he has rights. And because he's a Roman citizen, because God planned it that way, that allows Paul to get on the inside and share the gospel with people who he would never have an opportunity to share the gospel with. And from the inside, Paul begins making converts. People believe. Philippians chapter 1, he even tells the Philippians that 
Don't feel bad about what happened to me that I'm arrested and in prison because I was able to even preach to the imperial guard that the gospel has advanced through my suffering. You see, God who ordained his Roman citizenship, ordained his being born a Jew, being raised at the feet of Gamaliel, raised in the prominent city of Tarsus, every detail has earned him an audience with certain people for what purpose? To preach the gospel. Why? God is sovereign. That doesn't happen unless God is sovereign. Again, look at your life. Look at Amy Carmichael's life. There are no accidental details. Everything has been planned on purpose by God. Your parents, you may not like them. You may have a lot of pain in your life as a result of them. But somehow God had you born through them and raised by them for something. And we may not know that on this side of heaven. But we must trust the Lord. We must trust God who is sovereign, who knows better than we are. Like Amy Carmichael finds out, oh God, thank you for not answering those prayers. I would never have been able to rescue those little girls unless you had planned my eyes to be brown. Amazing. God chose Paul to be his witness and God ordains all of the details. Paul was the cream of the Jewish people. A Pharisee with the best education, well-respected, a lover of God's law, but also a Roman citizen, born in a place of prominence and prestige to earn him an audience with Gentiles far away from God. If that doesn't prove the sovereignty and providence of God, I don't know what does. I mean, and this is all over the scriptures, this truth. God is sovereign over our salvation, If it wasn't God choosing us before time began, none of us would ever choose him. It's God who plans our salvation. It's God who brings our salvation to to fruition. And it's God who will see us and finalize our salvation so that we will be with him forever. We're not saved unless God is sovereign. Nothing happens in your life unless God is sovereign. So when good and bad come, trust the Lord. In fact, even my own story, even my own story is a, is a testimony to the providence of God and sovereignty of God in my life. My, my mother, when she was 18 years old, ran away. and She lived in Miami, Florida at the time. And she found herself in a period of her life where she was in a homeless shelter for women. And during those days of being in a shelter, she met a man who impregnated her with me. Now think about the details of this story. If my mother doesn't run away from home, if, this, if my biological father had not found my mother, encountered my mother, he was not a good man and he brought a lot of hurt and pain to our family. And I've never met him or have known him. I don't even know if he's dead or alive. If God had not sovereignly planned for those details to happen in my life, you know what? You don't have a pastor. Like, you don't have Dan Sardinus as your pastor. I mean, I'm here because of some crazy thing that happened in my mother's life, and it resulted in my existence. My mother may not have planned me. My biological father may not have planned me or wanted me. But God did. And all the other things in my life that have happened to me. And where I've been and the people I've met. And the places I've been. God has used all of that in my life to bring me here to be your pastor. Unless God is sovereign, I am not your pastor. You are not who you are. And you never know when those sovereign plans of God will work for your good or what you consider to be bad. But all of it works for good so that God is good. And what you consider to be bad may be what God considers to be good because it's going to work out in your life something that you will never, ever imagine. Now, this isn't the same as come to Jesus, he has a wonderful plan for your life. 
No, because there's a lot of hurt and pain because we live in a fallen world. However, no matter what happens to us, no matter where we've been or where we're going, we must trust the Lord. I wonder, I wonder if Paul growing up wondered, I'm a Jew and a Roman citizen. Hmm, I wonder how that happened. I, I don't know, we don't really know much about that. He did consider a lot of those things to be accolades and things to be treasured. But we know that God had a purpose in it. Being born in Tarsus allowed him to be heard by the commander. Being born a Roman citizen allowed him to be heard all the way up to Caesar. And it saved his life. Being born a Jew at the feet of Gamaliel allowed him an audience with the Pharisees. So that he could be in a position to meet the Lord on the Damascus road. There are no accidental details of your life. Trust the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help at this time. Thank you, God, for your goodness in our lives. All the details that we don't know how they all work out, we know that they all work out for your glory and, your, and our good. Father, we pray now that you would save those who listen. May they know the gospel, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for, sin, for sinners. And if they call on his name, and they believe they will be saved. Father, sanctify your people through this word, that there are no accidental details of their life. Everything that happened to them, good or bad, is a part of the story God is telling. And it's been commanded of by the mouth of God for their good and your glory. It'll allow us to meet people we would never have met. It allows us to be Involved in things for your good pleasure we would never have been involved with. Help us to trust you through the good and bad of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, Lori, I'm done. You can come back. Yeah, I just, I just finished. I was re-preaching the sermon because the, uh, yeah, so I, I just finished. Yeah, you, you can come back. You're not going to bother me at all. All right, thanks. Bye-bye.